Judith and I would like to wish a happy birthday to six of our listeners today. A nice list. So, happy birthday to Fred A. Swank of Newton, John W. Economos of Des Moines, Leah Supple of Iowa City, Rebecca Lounsbury of West Des Moines, and Joan Melton of Altoona, as well as Douglas Drummond of Oskaloosa. So, one more time, happy birthday to Fred Swank of Newton, John Economos of Des Moines, Leah Supple of Iowa City, Rebecca Lounsbury of West Des Moines, Joan Melton of Altoona, and Douglas Drummond of Oskaloosa. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television or on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS listener, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We also need to know who's listening in order to help keep our services free to all. So now here's Judith and uh, with a look at today's obituaries. There are two uh, obituaries today. Harold Bader, uh, Harold William Bader, 94, of Scottsdale, Arizona, passed away peacefully at his group home residence on November 8, 2023. Harold was born February 8, 1929, to Rudy and Elsie Bader and grew up on the family farm near LaPorte City, Iowa. The oldest of three children, he graduated from Geneseo High School in 1947. Her, he was a pivotal player on the basketball team that made it to the 1945 state tournament. He attended Iowa State Teachers College in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and graduated from Iowa State University in Ames with a degree in vocational agriculture. He enlisted in the United States Army following graduation and was stationed in Germany during the Korean War. Before relocating, he married Marilyn M. Wise at the Geneseo United Methodist Church in Buckingham, Iowa, in 1952. After separating from the Army, the couple made their home in Mount Joy, Iowa, where Harold was a sales manager with International Harvester. After several years, he opened and owned an International Harvester Farm Implement dealership in Laporte. Following an economic downturn in farming, he began a career in agricultural banking, first with the LaPorte City Bank and then with Southern Arizona Bank, which necessitated a move with his family to Scottsdale, Arizona in 1968, where they remained. After many mergers and a managerial stint with the Federal Land Bank of Phoenix and then Chase Bank, he worked as a loan officer with the Casa Grande Cotton Finance Company, part of Chickasha Cotton Oil Company. Uh, before retiring, he opened his own farm insurance business. Family and friends remember Harold as an easygoing fellow with a wonderful sense of humor. As evidenced by his successful banking career, he had an astute ability to evaluate personal character and judge those worthy of a bank's confidence. Having lived through the Depression, he valued and appreciated every dollar. He dearly loved being with friends and family, often sharing a dirty martini with them promptly at 5 p.m. He had long-term associations with the Kiwanis Club of Phoenix and Shriners International. He participated in many activities and held various roles as a member of the Valley Presbyterian Church. He is survived by sons Barry, uh, married to Jan of Culpecker, uh, Culpepper, Virginia, and Bruce, married to Susan of Weston, Florida, a grandson, Stephen, and his sister, Arlene Bader-Sin. He was predeceased by his parents, wife, Marilyn, and his brother, Keith. A joint memorial service will be held for Harold and Marilyn on November 18, 2023, 
at 3 p.m. in the Valley Presbyterian Church in Paradise Valley. The service will be live streamed and donations can be made to the Kiwanis Club of Phoenix. And from West Des Moines, Helen K. Christensen, 78, passed away peacefully at her home on Saturday, November 11, surrounded by family. A visitation has been scheduled for Monday, November 20, from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m., followed by memorial services from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m., concluding with a luncheon from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. at Lutheran, Lutheran Church of Hope, 925 Jordan Creek Parkway, West Des Moines, Iowa, 50266, where Kay was an active search member. Kay was born on March 2, 1945, in Akron, Iowa, growing up on a farm with her parents, Bill and Helen Erks, along with two sisters, Phyllis and Joyce. After graduating from Akron High School, she attended and graduated from Morningside Nursing School. Kay married Jim Christensen in 1967 and was married for 39 years until Jim passed away in 2006. Kay worked for many years in the Norwalk Community School District as a school nurse. She also worked part-time at Iowa Lutheran Hospital in the Adolescent Behavior Behavioral uh, Health Unit until her retirement. Jim and Kay spent a lot of time in Arizona as snowbirds. Kay loved her family dearly and enjoyed spending family, time with family, friends, and granddaughters. She loved and adored her granddaughters, following and supporting them to dance competitions and athletic school and church events. They were her pride and joy, and she was no doubt their number one fan. Kay is survived by her son, Lance, his wife, Angie, and granddaughters, Carly and Paige of West Des Moines. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the Lutheran Church of Hope. Condolences may be expressed at www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. And we'll move to page four and of the Nation and World Extra in today's register. Um, headline, Georgia Judge Limits Evidence Release. This story by the Associated Press, Dateline, Atlanta. The judge overseeing the election interference case against former President Donald Trump and others in Georgia issued an order yesterday that prohibits the release of certain evidence. The ruling comes after news outlets this week reported on the contents of and published clips from interviews that four defendants conducted with prosecutors as part of their guilty pleas. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee wrote that allowing parties the unfettered ability to publicly share pretrial materi uh, pre materials undermines the discovery process, during which lawyers for both sides share evidence. McAfee wrote, potential jurors should be limited from exposure to materials that may be deemed inadmissible at trial. He continued, the likelihood of harm in this case is severe, as extensive media coverage guarantees broad dissemination of any disclosed discovery materials. Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis had initially asked for an order prohibiting the disclosure of any of the evidence shared with defense attorneys, but they, they agreed with a more narrowly focused order proposed by one of the defendants. A lawyer for a coalition of news outlets, including the Associated Press, argued during the hearing against any protective order, saying such a step requires the showing of a substantial threat of physical or economic harm to a witness and that this burden had not been met. Judge McAfee also set a hearing for Tuesday on Willis's request to revoke the bond of defendant Harrison Floyd, and the judge said Floyd is required to attend that hearing. 
Willis says Floyd has been trying to intimidate and communicate with witnesses and other uh, defendants in violation of his conditions of release agreement. His lawyer, Chris Kotcheroff, sorry, not sure how to say that, Kotcheroff, told the Associated Press on Wednesday that Willis's motion is without merit. Trump and 18 other people were charged in August with participating in a wide-ranging scheme to illegally try to keep the then-Republican president in power after his 2020 loss to Democrat Joe Biden. Four people have pleaded guilty in Georgia after reaching deals with prosecutors. The remaining 15 have pleaded not guilty. The trial date has not yet been set. Judge McAfee's order instructs prosecutors to review their discovery and designate as sensitive materials anything they believe should not be disclosed. Defendants will then have 14 days after receiving the discovery to contest that designation. If the two sides cannot agree on whether it is appropriate, the judge will decide. The evidence would not be disclosed until he has ruled. The protective order does not apply to information or records that are publicly available that the defendants obtain in any other way or that has been filed or received as evidence in another court proceeding. Defense attorney Jonathan Miller, who represents the former Coffee County Elections Director Misty Hampton, told the judge that he had released the videos of the interviews to one media outlet, but he did not identify which one. The Washington Post and ABC News reported on the videos on Monday. And from page 7 on the Nation and World Extra, Grieving Palestinians in Gaza Ask Why. The story released by the Associated Press by Samia Kulab and Nahib Jobain from Khan Yunus Gaza Strip. The night a blast struck his family's home in the Gaza Strip, Ahmed al-Nauk, was more than 2,000 miles away, but he still jolted awake, consumed with inexplicable panic. He reached for his cell phone to find that a friend had written and then deleted a message. Alno called him from London. The words that spilled from the other end of the line landed like world-shattering blows. Airstrike, everyone killed. Four nights later, Amar al-Buta was startled from sleep in the southern Gaza city of at Kanunis, when the wall of his bedroom collapsed over him. A missile had pierced his top-floor apartment and exploded one floor below. He lurched over the rubble, shining the light of his cell phone into the wreckage, calling out to his 16 relatives. Anyone there? he cried. There was only silence. Entire generations of Palestinian families in the besieged Gaza Strip, from great-grandparents to infants only weeks old, have been killed in airstrikes in the Israel-Hamas war, in which the Israeli army says it aims to root out the militant group from the densely populated coastal territory. Attacks are occurring at a scale never seen in years of Israel-Hamas conflict, hitting residential areas, schools, hospitals, mosques, and churches, even striking areas in southern Gaza where Israeli forces ordered civilians to flee. Israel said the goal of the war is to destroy Hamas following the militant group's deadly October 7 rampage in southern Israel that killed at least 1,200 people, and it maintains that the attacks target militant operatives and infrastructure. It blames the high death toll, more than 11,000 people, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, on Hamas, saying the group endangers civilians by operating among the population and in tunnels underneath civilian areas. 
Israel says the death toll includes Hamas fighters. But the scope of the destruction and loss of life in Gaza, with entire families wiped out in a single strike, has raised troubling questions about Israeli military tactics. It would take many hours of horror and mayhem before the truth would settle like the ash from the October 20 explosion that leveled al Nauk's family home, 21 relatives killed. They included his 75-year-old father, two brothers, three sisters, and their 13 children. Al Nauk, a graduate student in London, told the Associated Press, I cannot believe this actually happened, because if I calculate what it means, I will be destroyed. His father, Nasri, had recently told him that his sister Aya's home was destroyed in northern Gaza, and she was staying with them in the central city of Deir al-Bala, south of the area Israel had ordered Palestinians to leave. A home can be rebuilt, al-Nauk recalled replying, all that matters is that she and the children are alive. But just hours later, they were all dead. Wala, the most accomplished of the al Nuuk children with a degree in engineering, and her four children, Ala and her five children, Aya, known for her wry sense of humor, and her three children, older brother Muhammad and younger brother Mahmoud, who was preparing to travel to Australia for graduate studi stu studies when the war broke out. Nine of the 21 are still under the rubble, dire fuel shortages prevented civil defense crews from digging them out. Identifying the dead was another traumatizing endeavor. Many bodies were unrecognizable. Most were in pieces. Al Nauk's sister, Doa, who was not in the house at the time of the strike, told him she could not bear the smell of the rotting flesh of their loved ones under the rubble. Someone showed her body parts retrieved from the site and told her it was one of their sisters. There were two survivors, Shima, Al Nauk's sister-in-law, and Omar, his three-year-old nephew. His 11-year-old niece, Malaka, was taken to Al Agzwa Hospital with severe burns, but died after doctors gave her ICU bed to another patient with a better chance of survival, his sister Doa said. Doctors have to make extraordinarily difficult triage decisions, and severely wounded patients are being left to die because of shortages of beds, medical supplies, and fuel, said Dr. Mohammed Kandil in Nasser Hospital, Gaza's second largest. We leave most as we don't have ventilators or beds, he said of patients in need of intensive care with complicated blast wounds. We have reached full collapse. Israel does not say how it chooses targets in densely populated Gaza, but Israeli officials say many strikes on homes are based on intelligence assessments that wanted Hamas operatives um, are inside. Though it gives few details, Israel said every airstrike is reviewed by legal experts to ensure they comply with international law. Many Gaza families deny any Hamas targets were operating from their homes. The health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza does not distinguish between civilians and combatants, but says a majority of Palestinians killed have been minors and women, about 4,500 and 2,200 respectively. At least 304 families have lost at least 10 relatives. About 31 families have lost over 30, according to a November 6 health ministry report. That number is likely higher now as intense Israeli bombardment has continued. 
Among the families with the highest number of casualties, many have been children. The Al Estal family lost 89 relatives, 18 of them children under the age of 10, including three babies not yet a year old, according to an October 26 ministry report. The Hasuna family has 74 killed, including 22 children ranging in age from 1 to 10 years old. The Najars lost 65 relatives. More than 20 were under 10 years old, including 13 under 4. Amar al-Bodr said his relatives were all civilians with no links to Hamas. The Sagala family, his cousins known for their sweet shops in Gaza City, had taken shelter with al-Bodr's family in their four-story house in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, heeding Israeli evacuation orders. The family arrived with trays of confections for their hosts. Joking with his cousins in the family's living room was a rare moment of respite in the fog of war and displacement, the 29-year-old teacher said. One cousin, Ahmed Shagala, 42, spoke of rebuilding his family's bomb-damaged home and looked forward to fixing the plumbing and painting. Simple, sweet dreams, Abuda said. Ten years later, all 16 Sagalas, from 69-year-old Nadia to baby Assad, not yet a year old, were killed in the October 24 pre-dawn attack. A question left by Al-Nauk and his family's WhatsApp group the night the blast leveled their home, tell me, how are you guys, remains unanswered. The distance has made the devastating news all the more surreal, observing London's peaceful nights, where sounds of mirth resonate from restaurants and bars. Al-Anouk uh, Nauk imagines the airstrikes lighting Gaza skies, the screams of panicked residents, his family lying lifeless under the rubble. He has no idea where his relatives' bodies are buried. There was no space in the hospital morgue to keep them. They could be in a mass grave, but Al-Nauk has no way of knowing. Al-Buddha said the Sagala family was buried in his family grave in Khan Yunus. The entire, entire neighborhood mourned when they were interred. Our eyes are dry, he said. There are no tears left. In the chaos of the war, taking account of the dead is a rushed, heart-rending process. It begins with relatives scribbling the names of the dead and missing. They dig into the rubble with their hands, calling out for survivors. Hospitals later issue death certificates. Grieving relatives who maintain no one in their households had links to Hamas ask, Why them? Why would they kill children in an old man? ask Al-Nuwak. What is the military justification for bombing my house? They were all civilians. I wish one day I can meet the one who pulled the trigger. I want to ask him, why did you do it? Headline, New York judge lifts gag order for Trump in his New York fraud trial. Free speech concerns are raised at the hearing. This story by the Associated Press, Dateline, New York. A gag order that had barred Donald Trump from commenting about court personnel after he disparaged a law clerk in his New York civil fraud trial was temporarily lifted yesterday by an appellate judge who raised free speech concerns. Judge David Friedman of the state's Intermediate Appeals Court issued what's known as a stay, suspending the gag order and allowing the former president to freely comment about court staff while a longer appeals process plays out. The trial judge, Arthur Ngoran, imposed a gag order on October 3rd after Trump made a false comment about the judge's law clerk on social media. He later fined Trump $15,000 for violations and expanded it to his uh, uh, lawyers after they questioned the clerk's prominent role in the trial. 
Ruling at an emergency hearing on Thursday, Friedman questioned Ngoran's authority to police Trump's speech outside the courtroom, such as his frequent gripes about the case on social media and in comments to TV cameras in the courthouse hallway. Friedman said that while it's true that judges often issue gag orders, they're mostly used in criminal cases where there's a fear that comments about the case could influence the jury. Trump's civil trial doesn't have a jury. Trump lawyer Christopher Keyes said after Friedman ruled that the appellate judge made the right decision and allowed President Trump to take full advantage of his constitutional First Amendment rights to talk about bias in his own trial. What he's seeing and witnessing in his own trial, which frankly, everyone needs to see. Another Trump attorney, Alana Haba, indicated that she has no plans to advise the former president to stay quiet about the clerk. Haba, referring to New York Attorney General Letitia James, who was prosecuting the case, said, I don't see a reason for restrictions because Ms. James is continuing to disparage my client. Both sides need to be able to speak. Trump hasn't threatened the clerk's safety, she said. She suggested that Greenfield was bringing scrutiny upon herself by being visible in court and by using social media. Friedman's ruling also applies to Trump's lawyers and others involved in the case. Trump and his lawyers have repeatedly put the law clerk, Allison Greenfield, under a microscope during the trial. They contend that the former Democratic judicial candidate is a partisan voice in Judge Arthur Angoran's ear, though he is also a Democrat, and that she is playing too big of a role in the case involving the former Republican president. Angoran has responded by defending her role in the courtroom, ordering participants in the trial not to comment on court staffers, and fining Trump a total of $15,000 for what the judge deemed were violations. Angoran went on last week to prohibit attorneys in the case from commenting on confidential communications between the judge and his staff. Trump's lawyers, who separately sought a mistrial on Wednesday, contend that Angoran's orders are constitutionally are unconstitutionally suppressing free speech and not just any free speech. Quote, This constitutional protection is at its apogee where the speech in question is core political speech made by the front runner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination regarding perceived partisanship and bias at a trial where he is subject to hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties and the threatened prohibition of his lawful business activities in the state. Judith? Illinois earmarks $160 million to keep migrants warm in Chicago. This story by uh, Claire Savage uh, by the Associated Press, Report for America from Chicago. Governor J.B. Pritzker announced Thursday that Illinois will funnel an additional $160 million to help migrants arriving in Chicago to resettle, including $65 million to help the city launch winterized temporary shelter to avoid people sleeping outdoors in cold weather. The announcement came on an unseasonably warm Chicago day in the 60s, but with a forecast for temperatures to dip as low as 17 degrees Fahrenheit next week. Most of the roughly 24,000 asylum seekers who have come to Chicago since Governor Greg Abbott began sending buses last year hail from much warmer climates, leaving them vulnerable to Chicago's winters. Chicago and other U.S. cities, including New York, have struggled to house asylum seekers as winter weather hits and accommodate a growing migrant population. State officials said roughly 700 new migrants arrive each week. Similar issues could occur as wintry weather closes in on New York, 
which is struggling to accommodate a growing migrant population, and Denver, which was prompted to loosen its rules on how long migrants are kept in shelters during a recent cold snap. In Massachusetts, advocates for migrant families are relying on airport lounges, hospital waiting rooms, and churches after the state capped the number of beds in family shelters and offered few options for those facing homelessness. Illinois has already spent or committed more than $638 million to address the, huma the humanitarian asylum seeker crisis, officials said. The additional funds will come from the Illinois Department of Human Services. Chicago is in charge of housing new arrivals and has also spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to accommodate them. Pritzker said the state has stepped in now because the city has moved too slowly. Chicago has come under scrutiny from immigrant rights groups, local leaders, and residents for its handling of the crisis, which has heavily relied on volunteers. Pritzker said at a news conference at a state building in Chicago, the city has been operating its own methodology process, and it has not moved fast enough. We are stepping in here to try to help and accelerate this process. Mayor Brandon Johnson, who took office in May, has called it an inherited problem and one the city is working to address. Earlier this week, he announced new limits on how long migrants can stay at city-run shelters and said more resources would come from the state and county. Roughly 2,500 men, women, and children are awaiting placement at city-run shelters and sleeping outside inside or outside police stations or at O'Hare International Airport, according to the city. Of the $160 million new investment from the state, $30 million will be dedicated to setting up an intake and welcome center to better assist those coming to Chicago who already have a place to stay with friends or relatives or who plan to continue on to another location, according to the governor. Another $65 million will go toward helping Chicago set up a winterized soft shelter site, providing temporary housing for up to 2,000 people. State officials did not immediately respond to a request for clarification on whether this refers to tents or brick-and-mortar shelters. And $65 million more will provide services such as rental assistance and help with paperwork, including work permits. The idea is to help people live independently as soon as possible. Prisker called on Congress to step up to the plate and address the issue. He said, we are being forced to try to solve a federal-sized problem at the state and local level. Earlier this week, Johnson announced plans to cap shelter stays to 60 days. The city has used commercial space, hotels, and park district field houses as shelters once migrants are moved from the police stations. He did not offer details on what would happen if people did not have more permanent housing within that time frame. Johnson has also proposed winterized tents, but city officials have struggled to find a location. Report says the FDA found several problems at an eye drops plant. This story Dateline Washington by the Associated Press. An Indian company that recently recalled eye drops sold in the U.S. had a host of sanitation and manufacturing problems, including barefoot workers, cracked floors, and altered records, according to U.S. health inspectors. 
Food and Drug Administration officials uncovered more than a dozen problems at the Mumbai plant in uh, India operated by Chilatich Healthcare India, according to a preliminary inspection report posted by the agency. The factory produced more than two dozen varieties of eye drops that were subject to an FDA safety warning last month. The products were sold by CVS Health, Target, Rite Aid, and other national retailers who said they will be removed from store shelves. New details about the plant's problems emerged after FDA inspectors visited the plant late last month. Agency inspectors documented factory workers not wearing masks, gloves, and gowns, and working barefoot in areas that are supposed to be sterile. A manager told FDA officials that this is their standard practice. Elsewhere, FDA staff noted cracked floors, water stains, and peeling paint on walls and ceilings. The FDA report also suggests factory officials would routinely omit or falsify contamination test results. For instance, a factory microbiologist said that a bacterial sample that could trigger an alert or action limit would not be documented. Instead, officials would perform additional cleaning and then record a figure that indicated sterility. This occurred two or three times per month, according to the microbiologist. The FDA's initial findings are likely to be followed by a formal report and a warning letter to the company. On Monday, Kilatech healthcare officials officially recalled the lubricating eye drops sold in 27 different brands and formulations. The agency published the notice to its website on Wednesday. The recall is something of a formality since the FDA had already alerted U.S. stores and consumers to the problem. FDA officials don't have the legal authority to force drug manufacturers to recall their products and instead rely on companies voluntarily doing so. The FDA had recommended the recall on October 25th and shortly thereafter blocked imports from Kilatich. Well, for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Judith Linden and Dave Buzik. It's been our pleasure to read for you. We'll take a short break now to allow our next readers to get in place. Have a nice day and a good weekend.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Jim Hoffman and Lisa Horsch. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And here is Jim with our first opinion. Thank you, Lisa. And uh, we're going to start off. We're on the opinion page of USA Today, and this written by Ingrid Jacques. Uh, she is a columnist at USA Today. National debt mounts as Congress dawdles. I wonder if Representative Matt Gates is still pleased with himself, because after all the hullabaloo he caused, it turns out nothing has changed. The stunt the Florida Republican pulled last month to oust former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy got him some time in the limelight, although that has faded, thank goodness. He's still finding ways to be annoying, though. For all the chaos and turmoil Gates and a small group of Republicans spawned, you'd assume there'd be huge differences in House leadership and the spending bills proposed. Not so. New House Speaker Mike Johnson proposed something nearly identical to what got McCarthy ousted in the first place. It's a short-term measure to keep the government funded, stripped of additional costs and other add-ons. On Tuesday, it passed the House with strong Democratic support, which Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, needed, since 93 members of his own party voted against it. It's probably about the best Johnson could do, given the divisions within the GOP and the fact he's working with a Democratic-controlled Senate and White House. He la his laddered approach would extend the funding deadlines to two different dates, one in January and one in February. It keeps funding at current levels, which should make Democrats happy, and averts the threat of a government shutdown ahead of the holidays. But those deadlines will come quickly after the first of the year. Then what? Republicans and Democrats must wake up to reality. Many Republicans had demanded that additional spending cuts be tied to these annual spending bills. I'm sympathetic to that and have written numerous times about the impending doom of our national debt if Congress refuses to do anything about it. Here's the problem in the short term. McCarthy and President Joe Biden ironed out a deal earlier this year to raise the debt ceiling. The Fiscal Responsibility Act reduced spending for the next fiscal year and put in some caps both of which were big wins since Biden had sworn not to negotiate. So Republicans should honor that deal, as should Democrats. This doesn't mean they should give up on the debt. Democrats remain in denial that they'll ever need to slow the spending spigot, and the GOP isn't much better. In recent discussions over sending aid to Israel, for example, some Republicans suggested tying that to cuts in the IRS, whose budget experts say would increase the deficit even more because the agency is responsible for bringing in revenue. I'm no fan of the IRS, but math is math. One, our gross national debt surpassed 
$33 trillion in September, and it's rising at an ever faster clip. In the last fiscal year, the deficit doubled to about $2 trillion. We're in trouble, despite what the president keeps touting about Bidenomics. Leading financial institutions have noticed, too. On Friday, Moody's, um, Moody's Investors Service downgraded its U.S. credit rating outlook to negative from stable, given the high deficits and the increased costs of managing the debt. This follows an actual credit rating downgrade from Fitch ratings earlier this year. GOP needs to think big or go home. The bickering over the budget is far from a new phenomenon, and Congress has been dysfunctional for decades, says Maya um, McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Neither party wants to take responsibility for our unsustainable debt or make the tough decisions necessary to make things better. So they keep piling on the de bad decisions. The budget process is absolutely broken, McGinnis told me. Rather than waste time with infighting, Republicans should make clear the dangers of the skyrocketing debt. And there are concrete things they can do. Chief among them is that the President and Congress should back the formation of a bipartisan fiscal commission which a growing number of lawmakers and policy experts have said would be the best hope of making a dent in our spending. The idea is that it would take extreme partisanship out of making necessary budget cuts <clears throat> and offer political cover for lawmakers to sign on. This month, Senator Mitt Romney, Republican from Utah, and Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, introduced the Fiscal Stability Act, which would create the Fiscal Commission. Neither Romney nor Manchin is seeking re-election, and they might be eyeing a third-party presidential run, but good for them for doing this. A similar bipartisan bill was introduced in the House in September. Polls continually show voters' trust the GOP on the economy at record rates for now. And if Republicans are serious about reining in the debt, then what, uh, <clears throat> what they should focus on is winning more seats in Congress and winning back the White House. To do that, however, they'll have to show that they can actually govern and act like adults. Is that too much to ask? McCarthy sucker punches other forms of GOP on GOP violence. This is written by Rex Hupke, who is a columnist for the USA Today. All right, all right, everybody settle down. We've got reports that Republican Representative Kevin McCarthy elbowed one of his colleagues in the kidney while walking the halls of Congress this week. We also watched video of Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma trying to get a witness in a Senate hearing to stand up and fight him. 
As the presiding officer of the Office of Congressional Fisticuffs, it's clear I need to remind lawmakers on the Republican side of the aisle that there are rules around here, and those rules are meant to be followed. McCarthy throwing elbows. A senator ready to brawl? Why so violent, GOP? First off, I was today years old when I learned there's a senator named Mark Wayne Mullen. It sounds like two names stuck together. Are we sure he's not a child sitting on another child's shoulders wearing a man suit? Because he sure talked like two children trying to act tough. Anywho, let's start with the first incident Tuesday involving McCarthy and Republican Representative Tim Bur Burkett of Tennessee. The former House Speaker walked by Burkett in a crowded hallway and, according to Burkett, jabbed him in the back. The Tennessee lawmaker exclaimed, Why'd you elmo me in the back, Kevin? Hey, Kevin, you got any guts? Jerk. If a Republican wants to punch another one, there are rules. Burkett ran after McCarthy and engaged in some light hollering while McCarthy denied the kidney shot. That is, in a word, pathetic. It also goes against the rules we've established here in the Office of Congressional Fisticuffs, since Republicans seem dead set on letting their violent, faux-tough-guy rhetoric trickle down into the halls of Congress, it's clearly time for a refresher course. First, no sucker punches. If McCarthy wanted to strike Burkett, he needed to file the appropriate lawmaker-on-lawmaker -lawmaker violence request form and arrange a mutually agreed-upon time for said punching. Per tradition, the two would meet at the cafeteria in the Longworth House office building, and then, following our strict only-from-the-neck-up policy, McCarthy would be allowed to take a swing at Burkett. If the former House Speaker made contact, the congressional tattoo artist would be called in to give McCarthy one teardrop tattoo under his left eye. If he missed, Burkett would be allowed one punch with all the same rules applying. GOP Senator Mullen challenges a hearing witness to a fight. This is how we do the, folks the people's business around here, folks. As for Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, another set of long-held rules apply. In a Senate hearing Tuesday, he instructed witness Sean O'Brien, president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, to stand your butt up so they could apparently fight. Mullen said, this is the time. This is the place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. If Republicans want to fight, there are forms to fill out, people. First off, per literally all rules of fighting, Nobody needs to consent, you truculent nerd. Proper congressional lawmaker versus witness skirmishes require violent eruption, ideally involving at least one leap over a desk and no fewer than 12 audible gasps from fellow lawmakers. What Mullen did was chirp like a big dumb bird, while the Teamster witness presumably pondered how nice the lawmaker would look wearing cement shoes on the edge of a boat. Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent from Vermont, intervened and told both men to knock it off. He should have also instructed them to follow proper procedure. Dueling pistols can be checked out if Republicans want to have at it. Mullen had two choices, either launch himself at the witness or try giving him the business OR. And this is the approach we in the Office of Congressional Fisticuffs prefer challenge the witness to a duel. Once a duel is called for and the proper paperwork is filed, 
the witness and the lawmaker could be escorted onto the U.S. Capitol grounds and issued a pair of American flintlock dueling pistols from the early 1800s. They would then be left to sort their nonsense out while everyone else went back in to do their darn jobs. Later in the day, Tuesday, Mullen ran to his Fox News safe space and told Sean Hannity that political correctness kept him from a Senate hearing room thrown down with the Teamster. All of a sudden, you got to worry about somebody's feelings, he said. Tough guy Republicans show that bravery isn't their strong suit. Let's be clear, senator or possibly two kids in disguise, what stopped you from fighting Mr. O'Brien was Senator Sanders, an 82-year-old Democratic socialist who didn't even have to stand up, and the fact that you're a performative goof a few feathers shy of a chicken. I mean, the request forms for dueling pistols are available outside every meeting room. Listen, folks, the congressional rules of engagement exist for a reason. Without them, we have chaos. Or, as today's Republicans might call it, Tuesday. Jim? Thank you, Lisa. I will turn our attention to sports, the Des Moines Register. Um, Sports on, on TV, your TV schedule, just a, a few highlights from that. Um, auto racing, there will be on ESPN2, uh, the Formula One practice at Las Vegas, um, and then at 2, uh, that, that's at, uh, I'm sorry, at 1125, uh, and then uh, that's PM today. These are Eastern times, 2.55 a.m. on Saturday. Uh, college football um, at 9 p.m. Um, Eastern time, ESPN 2, South Florida at University of Texas at San Antonio, and at 10.30 on FS1, uh, Colorado at Washington State. Uh, college basketball women's. Uh, at 2.30 uh, this afternoon, uh, a Pac-12 game, uh, Princeton at UCLA. NBA basketball, if you're one of those fans, 7.40 p.m. on ESPN, Sacramento at San Antonio. And for hockey fans, uh, NHL hockey at uh, 2 p.m., um, there's the Global Series, Toronto versus Detroit. That comes from Stockholm, Sweden. And at uh, 8 p.m. Uh, on the NHL Network, uh, Buffalo at Winnipeg. Um, we have the Register Athletes of the Week. Uh, Tollefson McGuff uh, win or voted the Register's Athletes of the Week. Uh, this written by Joe Randleman of the Register. Marshalltown diver Abby Tollefson and MFL Marmac football player Quinn McGuff were voted the Des Moines Register's Iowa Ortho Female and Male Athletes of the Week for November 5 to 11. Tollefson won Female Athlete of the Week with 49% of the vote. Johnston's Faith Frantum was second with 36%. Tollefson was the one-meter diving champion at the Girls State Swimming and Diving Meet on Saturday, November 11th, at the Marshalltown 
YMCA. Uh, the Marshalltown senior followed up last year's runner-up finish by finished placing first at the 2023 meet with a score of 504.55 points. And McGuff won Male Athlete of the Week with 65% of the vote. Van Meter football running back Ben Gordon was second with 9%. McGuff led MFL Marmac to a 41-28 victory over Underwood during the 1A semifinals of the football playoffs on Friday, November 10th. The Bulldog running back rushed for 139 yards and five touchdowns to help his team reach the 1A championship game. In high school girls basketball, Johnston changes attitude ahead of 2023-24 season. Aaliyah Riley set the tone early in the 2023 Iowa High School Girls Basketball Class 5A State Championship game. The 5'9 Johnston guard recorded two steals, drew a foul for a one-on-one -on -one after her second basket, scored the first seven points for the Dragons, and picked up the assist on Aaliyah Tanky's first points of the game. Between Riley's all-around skill set, Tanky's range, and then true freshman Jenica Lewis's defensive acumen, Johnston looked the part of a school championship contender. The Dragons' opponent, Pleasant Valley, had other plans, though. Johnston dug itself out of a 10-point hole late in the fourth quarter to trail by one point with under 14 seconds left, but two free throws from Reagan Pagliano from Pleasant Valley a three -point gave Pleasant Valley a three-point advantage. Two last-ditch three-point shots from Riley and Lewis fell short. In a seesaw matchup between the reigning state champion Dragons and the undefeated Spartans, Pleasant Valley finished with the trophy. As the Spartans stormed the court in celebration, the deflated Johnston players stood on the floor waiting to walk through the handshake line before accepting the runner-up trophy. Obviously, we were pretty disappointed, Riley told the Des Moines Register on Monday. We only lost by three, but this year... We're coming back better. That isn't just a hopeful statement, one that her teammates, um, Tanky and Lewis, nod in agreement to from Riley. The Dragons are on a mission this season to bring the championship trophy back to Johnston. The title game against the Pleasant Valley may have tipped off two months ago, but the three Johnston captains remember the moment well, and the feelings that came along with losing this state title are something they don't want to experience again this year. We see it as motivation, Tanky said. We kind of talk about it every day at practice, trying to get back to where we were, but with a different ending. We think about it every single day and how we're going to do things differently to get a different outcome. Johnson's roster boasts four of the top girls basketball players in Iowa. Johnson is accustomed to winning, and with winning comes a target on the Dragons' back. Since 2020, the Dragons have collected two state titles and finished as runner-up twice. Two players from the Dragons were selected to all four of those all-tournament teams, and in the championship-winning years, Johnson players captained the all-tournament teams. Johnson has lost less than 10 games in each of the last five seasons. That level of sustained success isn't easy, especially for a team playing at an arguably um, the toughest conference in the, in the state, night in and night out. According to head coach Chad Jillick, there isn't really a secret to the Dragons' magic on the court. 
we're in that cycle right now where we just have tremendous talent, Jillick said. There's nothing necessarily that we do. There's no secret to it. When you have talent, you're going to win games. Talent is the operative word when trying to understand Johnson's success. The team's starting lineup features four of the top players in Iowa. Lewis, Tanky, Riley, and Amani Jenkins, who transferred to Johnson after leading DeMorne North to a conference title last season. Tanky is Iowa State basketball signee, led the team with 15.5 points per game while shooting 52% from the field. Riley, who will continue her career at Northwest Missouri State, led the team in assists. Lewis, who holds over three dozen Division I offers, was Johnson's leading blocker and recorded the most steals. Lewis is ranked the number one player in the register's rankings of the top 50 girl basketball players in Iowa. Tanky is number four. Riley is number 17. Jenkins, a Marquette commit and junior center whose impact is yet to be proven at Johnson, is the number eight player on the list. So, on paper, the Dragons have everything they need to make a deep run into the postseason. But Tanky, Riley, and Lewis, and especially Jillick, know better than anyone that talent doesn't guarantee a championship. I've seen a lot of teams with great talent not win championships because they don't play well together, Jillick said. That's one of the things they've really focused on. All about attitude this season. Johnson's three team captains, Tanky Riley Lewis, understand what went wrong in February's championship game. The talent was clearly there for the Dragons, but Johnson didn't quite have the on-court connection needed to get past Pleasant Valley. If the Dragons want to win a championship this season, which most Iowa high school basketball fans expect of them, they cannot rely on talent alone. Lewis said, we need to play more together as a team. I feel like our main word this year is attitude. We mainly need to fix that because I feel like we have so much talent, we just need to play together. For the members of the Johnston girls basketball team, attitude encompasses everything. It's about how they act when things aren't going their way on the court. It's about staying focused when things are going well. It's about understanding the role on the team and accepting the responsibility that comes with it. Regardless of their recruiting ranking, this season isn't about how Tanky or Riley or Lewis or Jenkins perform. It's all about the team. Riley said, we didn't connect as a whole much last season, and I feel like we're together more than ever now. Things have changed, and we hope to prove that starting this week. All right. Thanks, Lisa. And it's time for Dear Abby. There's a couple letters. I'll read the first one and then uh, let Lisa handle the second one. <clears throat> let emotionally abused friend know he has network of support. Dear Abby, my best friend, Owen's wife, Shirley, is a narcissist, and she's driving ev everyone away from him. They've been married for 10 years. I've known Owen since high school. He has always been a quiet, easygoing guy. Shirley is a nightmare. She has um, berated him at work and has left him by himself on holidays, including birthdays. She orders him around and she runs everything without hardly paying for ever, anything. I am divorced and I've been through it. I don't know how to tell Owen that there's a safety net for him. I know telling him his wife is a crazy narcissist and he should leave isn't the answer. She has berated me for getting in their marriage. My friend is afraid he has no support 
if he leaves because Shirley has alienated him from all of his friends, and the only family he has are his parents and sister who live many miles away. She has pushed me away from him as well. What can I say to Owen to make him understand that there are people here who are just waiting for him to ask for help without his feeling I am pressuring him? Has uh, and signed, has his back in Florida. Abby writes, Dear has his back. There is more than one kind of partner abuse. Although most people associate the term with physical violence, another is emotional. It appears Owen is the victim of many years of emotional battery. Because he is scared, a group that might lend him emotional support is stop abuse for everyone. Stopabuseforeveryone.org uh, online. It's a nonprofit that provides services for domestic violence victims of all ages, genders, and sexual orientations, and helps those who typically fall between the cracks of domestic violence services. Please mention it to Owen and remind him that he may not be as isolated as he fears because his friends are waiting to support him when he is ready. Our second letter says, Dear Abby, my family doesn't know I have cancer in my kidneys, and I don't want to tell them. I feel that when the time comes, it comes, but my boyfriend keeps pushing me to tell them. I don't want anybody to be worried about me or my health. I have been the black sheep of the family since I was a child. Nobody was there for me except my grandmother, but she's no longer living. I just feel my family doesn't need to know anything. Am I being selfish? about what I'm going through, wanting to keep my illness to myself, and when the time comes, let my boyfriend tell them what happened? Black Sheep in New York. Abby writes, Dear Black Sheep, I'm sorry about your diagnosis. You are not being selfish. If your family hasn't been there for you in the past, I understand your reluctance to court for their rejection. While it might be nice to give them an opportunity to atone for their past behavior, there is no guarantees that they will. Your health status is your business and no one else's, so don't allow your boyfriend, as well-meaning as he may be, to push you into anything you don't want at this point. That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Friday, November 17th. I'm Lisa Horsch, and my partner at the microphone has been Jim Hoffman. Earlier, you heard from Dave Buziak and Judith Linden. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.